Think of the oysters. Howdy. You're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share our views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zolkowski. I'm Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Elfstrom. The South Texas city of Corpus Christi was once considered a natural refuge from hurricanes. In 1919, though, it bore the brunt of a vicious Category 4 storm which devastated the city and killed hundreds, including two of Texas' first game wardens who gave their lives rescuing citizens. Today we look at the remarkable story of Captain Joe Williams and the storm of 1919. But first, who's your favorite Texas sportscaster? Well, I know football season is starting up, but it's the tail end of baseball season, and my favorite uh, sportscaster announcer of all time is Milo Hamilton, who was with the Houston Astros from the mid-80s all the way through 2012, and still works with them on some capacity, oh. but he's he's the voice of Houston, the Houston Astros. Way to go, Milo. Well, I- I'm going to go with a local Dallas favorite and uh, viral sensational star, Dale Hansen. <laughs> Dale Hanson. That's funny to Dallas people, but he's a good guy. You look him up. I'll well, stand by that. Well, my pick is Champ Kind. Whammo! That's in the. That's a fictional sportscaster <laughs> from San Diego. He's wearing a cowboy hat. <laughs> Prove me wrong. <laughs> We're going to claim him from Texas. Whammo! <laughs> mm, scotchy scotch. Who who plays him? That's a uh, uh, catcher. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> David Keckner. You come on to come and take it anytime. You're welcome. <laughs> the Texas coast is a natural target for hurricanes. It's long and curved, and it forms the western end of the Gulf of Mexico, a vast expanse of warm water in perfect alignment with the normal path of Atlantic hurricanes. Hurricanes have lashed the shores of the Gulf Coast since before recorded history in the days of Spanish explorers in the 1500s. However, Corpus Christi Bay was a part of Texas once thought hurricane-proof for various natural reasons, and in 1919 this would all be proven tragically wrong. Corpus Christi has a long and storied history in Texas. In 1519, Spanish explorer Alonso Alvarez de Pineda discovered a beautiful tropical bay on the Texas coast at the mouth of the Nueces River, about 150 miles north of the Rio Grande. He named it Corpus Christi Bay for the Body of Christ. In the early 1800s, this area became known as the Old Indian Trading Grounds, after a trading post that was established by Henry Kinney and William Aubrey in 1838. Though it was called an Indian trading post, most of the trade was done illegally with Mexico, which occupied the land between the Rio Grande and the Nueces at the time. In the last days of the Republic, Henry Kinney expanded his property in the area to include a major ranch. By 1845, Kinney's ranch became a significant military post in the build-up to the Mexican-American War under the command of General and future President Zachary Taylor. Two years later, the city officially changed its name to Corpus Christi as a, quote, more definitive postmark for letters was needed. This small town on the bay, with its islands and gulf-facing approach, became an important shipping center for the farms and ranches in South Texas. There were four railroads terminating there by 1914. The Texas-Mexican, the San Antonio-Naranzas Pass, the St. Louis-Brownsville in Mexico, and the San Antonio-Uvalde in Gulf. At the dawn of the 20th century, The Texas Coastal Bend, which is the flat area of land along the Texas coast, was also blooming into a premier resort destination. Rail agents promoted the city's virtues by saying that it was a place where, quote, the weary can come to rest, the invalid can come for health, and the gay devotee can come for pleasure. 
The greatest need of the time in the minds of the city fathers, though, was that the main sea channel was only eight feet deep, far too shallow for the rapidly growing passenger and cargo ships of the day. Civic planners began organizing just before the First World War to transform Corpus into a major deep water port. In 1913, the city launched a major civic improvement program, paving streets, building a sewage and water system, modernizing the fire department, and building a new city hall. The war broke out before the channel could be deepened, though, and the war, of course, took the first priority. But when it ended, jobs remained plentiful along the coast. There was cotton to be picked, fish to be caught, cattle to be herded, and a burgeoning services industry to accommodate tourism. Still, Corpus Christi was well on its way to becoming a modern city. Just like Corpus Christi, the state of Texas was going through a transformation from a rough-hewn frontier to a modern society. As the state's population increased, its wildlife began to decline. In the late 1800s, the first conservation regulations were created to control the depletion of Texas wildlife caused by overhunting and overfishing, and by the turn of the century, the Game, Fish, and Oyster Commission was created to enforce these laws. In 1919, there were six game wardens for the entire state. One of these was Joe Williams, who was born in 1870 on Matagorda Island. He grew up in and around Port Lavaca and Corpus Christi. He was a shipbuilder, a boatman, and a licensed captain. In January of 1919, he was commissioned a deputy game warden of the Texas Game, Fish, and Oyster Commission at the age of 49. Joe had known the barrier islands and shallow flats of the Corpus Coast his entire life. Who better to catch the illegal netters and poachers? Joe partnered with another game warden, Henry Raymond, the son of a local game warden from Port Lavaca. Though freshly minted as lawmen, the two quickly garnered a reputation for being hard-nosed enforcers. This was, for Texas, a very early stage in conservation enforcement, and game wardens have always fulfilled a special role in Texas. By March, Captain Joe received the following letter from Commissioner William Sterrett. I am particularly pleased with what you are doing at Aransas Pass. I want this pass kept clean and want no unlawful nets in it. Should you find any, destroy them at once. You should tell these people that if you catch a boat of unlawful fishermen, you are directed to burn the boat together with the nets. You will notify all the fishermen that they must be American citizens and also have a license from the state in order to fish. Should you catch anyone fishing without a license or one who is not a citizen, arrest him and take him to Corpus Christi at once. The booming 1919 season and the number of fishermen that year made these wardens incredibly busy during the last week of vacation season in September. It was noted that the fish were behaving strangely, feeding madly at the surface. Some people reported being able to load a boat simply by dipping a net over the side. What they didn't know was that this is common behavior for sea life fleeing a significant tropical storm, and a hurricane was on its way. Hurricanes were not an uncommon occurrence on the Gulf Coast, with truly devastating storms like the ones that destroyed Indianola and Galveston coming every 10 to 20 years. But on those sunny days in September 1919, locals and vacationers alike were unconcerned at the reports that a massive hurricane in the Atlantic was approaching the Texas coast. The war in Europe was over, a final peace was near, and the Spanish flu pandemic had passed. Everyone was returning to normalcy and enjoying the beauty of the Texas coast. At the beginning of September, a tropical storm was picking up steam as it passed through the Caribbean. The National Weather Service's New Orleans office reported that the storm was becoming severe off the Florida coast as it approached the Florida Keys. Reports showed wind speeds increasing and atmospheric pressures became very low. And this is a sign of the power and intensity of a hurricane on September 8th as it was nearing Key West. The storm had already caused two ships to founder in the Bahamas and off the coast of Cuba. When it reached landfall, 
only one other storm had recorded a lower barometric pressure, the 1886 storm, which devastated the Texas port of Indianola. It passed through the Keys, giving them a terrible pounding on September 10th. As it headed into the Gulf of Mexico, it could land anywhere on the Texas coast. At the time, it seemed Corpus had little to fear from the monster storm. With a reputation as the safest place on the Texas coast, Corpus had St. Joe's and Mustang Islands as natural barriers to any storm. In 1900, Galveston had been obliterated by a somewhat weaker storm precisely because it was located on a barrier island and bore the brunt of the storm. In addition, there are natural bluffs over Nueces Bay, which are 40 feet high, and in the past had served as another flood barrier, something Indianola, located on Matagorda Bay, didn't have. In fact, the bluffs of Corpus Christi are the tallest on the Gulf Coast from Miami to Veracruz, Mexico. Only three years before, Corpus weathered a sizable storm with little damage. The method with which meteorologists tracked hurricanes at this time was through storm reports from ships at sea. Most of those were either stuck in the storm or were actively avoiding the hurricane. Ships would telegraph a radio wind speed, direction, barometric pressure readings, temperature, and precipitation. Coastal observers on the islands of the Caribbean were also important. However, once a storm was in the Gulf, which was a vast body of water with little land, there was little forewarning where it would actually make landfall. Based on the plotting and the predictions of the time, the popular belief held, at least in South Texas, was that this storm was likely headed into Louisiana. But hurricanes are strange things, often seeming to have minds of their own. Despite unusual winds, Corpus was 92 degrees and sunny on Saturday, September 13th. By the evening, the winds had shifted and died down, prompting local beaches to lower the storm warning flags. Surely the hurricane was in fact headed towards Louisiana, like they thought, far to the north. Late that night, however, winds began to blow stronger at 45 miles per hour with a steady driving rain. At midnight, there were reports of rising tides and heavy rains. By Sunday morning, the barometer was dropping through the floor and the tides were rising even higher. Evacuation orders for low-lying areas were issued. Upon hearing of the storm, game wardens Williams and Raymond left the docks and headed out to their patrol boat Reliant moored two miles away. They planned to put out extra anchors and help get people off the water. According to Williams' grandson, Joe Williams, I was told growing up that they were rescuing people drowning and stayed out until the last person left. A big wave swept them overboard and they drowned. While a hurricane's wind speeds and barometric pressure are usually used to determine a storm's categorization and intensity, the storm surge driven by these colossal weather engines is the real threat. The storm surge doesn't wash in like a single large tidal wave, but it moves in like rapid rising of a tide with 5 to 10 foot wind-blown waves that can sweep through a coastal area. The most dangerous part of a hurricane is the right front quadrant bearing the brunt of the rotational energy of the storm since all Atlantic hurricanes rotate in a counterclockwise manner. When a hurricane is headed due west towards the Texas coast, the right front quadrant is like a sweeping scythe of water and wind bearing down on a perfect target. This was the main effect then when the storm made landfall 25 miles south of Corpus Christi on Sunday around noon. The city and all the communities north bore the full impact of the storm's force. The storm surged into Corpus Christi Bay, destroying the causeway between Corpus and the nearby town of Portland, cutting off the escape route from the North Beach. The surge also destroyed the oil tankers anchored in Aransas Bay, sending thousands of gallons of crude surging across to Corpus Christi Bay. Corpus Christi had planned to build seawalls and breakwaters, which were part of their bid for federal funding for a deep water port. However, none of these barriers, which would deflect or absorb wave energy, were in place. 
Once the storm crossed the barrier islands, there would be no refuge or protection from the city from the devastating storm surge. Rising five feet in an hour, the floodwaters topped out at 11 feet, crushing and destroying everything in its path through downtown. The storm raged for 12 hours, dumping 14 inches of rain on Corpus. Morning found Corpus Christi a disaster. The bodies and wreckage were hauled to the West Portland Schoolhouse, where morticians and volunteers cataloged, numbered, and buried bodies to prevent disease. Thirty separate mass graves were dug, the largest measuring 1,400 by 3,200 feet long. Wardens William and Raymond were among the dead buried in what became known as the Big Grave. Unlike many bodies recovered, their bodies were actually identified. The death toll in Corpus Christi officially is 286, which was the number of bodies found or missing identified. However, it may have been as high as 600 or, or even higher. Since this data was not accurate at the time as it is today, there were many migrant and itinerant workers and sailors passing through Corpus Christi, and some communities, such as the African-American and Hispanic communities in the area, were little documented at all. And plus, there was lots of ships in the harbor and tourists staying at the resorts. It's likely that hundreds of people whose identities would never be known were simply swept out to sea, never to be seen again. All told, the entire death toll for the storm was around 800, making it the sixth deadliest American hurricane on record. The bodies were later removed and reinterred at proper graveyards in Corpus Christi and the surrounding areas. The entire area would rebuild and recover. In 1922, federal funding came through to deepen the ship channel to 30 feet, and it was completed in 1926, the year after a breakwater was constructed. Seawalls were finally built in 1940, by which time Corpus Christi was the most important port in South Texas, booming due to onshore and offshore oil drilling, as well as the construction of major naval and military installations. In the 1960s, new, deeper channels were built to allow entry of huge modern oil supertankers. Corpus Christi weathered major hurricanes in the 1950s and 1960s, and Hurricane Celia in 1970 was particularly devastating. None ever had the damage or impact of the 1919 storm. Today you can find Joe Williams and Harry Raymond's names on the Texas Game Ward Memorial at the Texas Freshwater Fisheries Center in Athens, Texas. The memorial is a dedication to the 18 wardens who have given their lives in service since resource conservation laws were enacted in 1895. I stumbled across this story. I found it in um, a back issue of the Texas Parks and Wildlife mm-hmm. has a magazine that they yeah. issue every month. And so this was a back issue from a couple of years ago, and they, they highlighted uh, the story of, of Joe and Captain Joe and Henry. And, you know, we pulled a lot of data from this, but I thought it was really interesting at the time that there was only six of these game wardens and they gave, you know, they died in the middle of this massive storm. And we've been talking about hurricanes a lot lately. And, you know, just sort of an interesting nexus between these what a game warden is, how they sort of fit in, but also this idea of, you know, really what Corpus was and, and how it started as it was this placid bay, these beautiful cliffs. It became a trading post, a military operation. You know, it was a city on the edge of becoming, a, you know, really a major port. And then, bam, major hurricane. And so we've got two real stories here, and that's the story of the game wardens, like you said, and the story of Corpus Christi. And I think the interesting thing about Corpus Christi is, we talked about Indianola several months ago and how that hurricane hit Indianola in 1875 and then they rebuilt and then in 1886 it completely wiped out the city. And Galveston didn't take the right lessons from the hurricane in 1886 and it destroyed Indianola. And it was hit in 1900 and it seems like Corpus Christi didn't necessarily take the right lessons from the Galveston 
hurricane. So it's like these hurricanes that hit Texas in these early days of really before modern meteorology, you could take the wrong lessons from these great storms. Yeah. Well, I mean, and it also, I think, goes to show the, the hubris of thinking, well, okay, we saw what happened to you guys, but we're in a better situation. Well, they had and a it, better but it, situation. It, well, in some yes, way. but it doesn't take into account the complete unpredictability of Absolutely. hurricanes. Mm-hmm. And what really hurt them in a way was that in 1916, there was a major storm that hit Corpus, but when it hit Corpus, it the barrier islands and the bluffs did the job that they thought it was going to do in the next storm. And right, they thought, well, right. our system is clearly working because we're right. still here. And there was uh, interesting stories of like the hurricane was coming and people just, they thought, okay, well, it's coming, but we're going to be fine to the point where even when the evacuation signals went out, there was a story of a Czech uh, family who was, you know, it was the weekend and they were like, we have to, they had to finish baking their kolaches before they could, before they, they evacuated out. Right. And I think the strength of Corpus Christi is you're, they're exactly right in that in for certain circumstances and conditions, the, the barrier islands and the bluffs do prevent the hurricane from doing a lot of damage. And so that was what enabled it to really rebound from this storm and completely transform itself to get the necessary pieces to protect the city from future hurricanes by putting in the seawall, by putting in the breakwaters, by having the better predictors so that future and, and dredging the deeper channel. And I, and I just thought it was interesting too, that it was like, no Corpus was this very small area. And then they were really having a boom. I mean, they were becoming a vacation spot. Like, mm-hmm. you know, today we think of, Oh, well let's load up the fam in the car and let's, Let's go down to Corpus for for a little beach vacation. Yeah. But this is 1919, you know. Yeah. And, you know, it also, I mean, Galveston was the same way. Galveston was booming in 1900, and they were on their way up. They were the, you know, biggest city in Texas. They were the biggest port in the Gulf Coast, um, or one of the biggest ports on the Gulf Coast. And then here comes this hurricane. And I think it also illustrates the tenacity of humanity and the... Uh, desire to build and live in places where you probably should not build and live. Well, you it's it's beautiful 99.9% of the time. You're like, oh, there's a beach and the waves and the wind and the water is like, every 20 years there's going to be a storm that's going to really knock you on your butt. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. we'll deal with that in... We'll deal with that in twenty years. Yeah, but but Corpus was uh, it was on its way up, and 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 you know, if the darn war hadn't happened, they might have had the sea walls built and the channel dug and all these kind of things might have might have some yep. of these things might have happened. But the Second World War really helped it complete its recovery and really really caused it to boom with with the oil. But then the military coming in and the major naval base and the major naval air station in Corpus Christi, especially and Whataburger. Corporate headquarters of Whataburger. Yeah, and and I have to say, when I visited Corpus, that um, it's no wonder that they wouldn't be worried about hurricanes considering how windy it is there all the time. (laughs) And this is an interesting, I I don't have the source of this, but I I remember hearing this years ago that Corpus is one of the most consistently windy places in North America. Oh, I believe it. There's a constant onshore 30 to 40 mile hour breeze. I don't don't know what's happening there. There's 40 mile hour winds. It's like, yeah, it's called Tuesday. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Your hair doesn't, your hair's a mess. Hair's a mess every day. Well, and so then the other side of the story is Captain Joe and 
Well, these, these it's so cool. The guy's 49. Yeah. You know, he's 49 and he's done all of these odd jobs. And, and then there's this, you know, progressive politics are sweeping and people are looking around saying, you know, we have to take care of the oysters. Who's going to take care of the oysters? <laughs> Think of the oysters. Think of the oysters. <laughs> but then you, know, you have this, uh, the the game fish and oyster commission and, and, you know, they fulfilled a very important role. They said, you know, we have to, we can't let just anybody overfish. And, and as you heard from Sean's delightful reenactment, yeah. you know, uh, there was there was a real desire, but I, well, I can't imagine just six guys patrolling the entire coast of Texas yeah. and keeping yeah. order. And so to our friends who are not from Texas and who don't know, game wardens in Texas are not park rangers. No. No. They are more like Texas rangers. They're more like, yeah, they, they are they licensed are officers of the law. They Who are armed. They are armed. They have um, a very special and unique charter. One of the things I think is really cool about them is is that they they the normal search and seizure laws don't apply to a game warden right they have a lot broader um they have a lot more purview and leeway when it comes to what they can and can't search and what they can and can't enforce but at the other hand they're really only focused on stopping people who are committing environmental crimes and people who are poaching or people who are fishing illegally. And they're just they're just trying to enforce regulations for not just they're not just a bunch of tree hugging people. They're trying to keep people safe. But they are they are law enforcement officers. They, and they are do policemen they do, first. They are policemen first. So if they see a crime being committed, no matter what it is, they will react. <laughs> but I mean it, it it's I've a, known it's people an, who all, are they're awesome guys. They're yeah. all, we've met, I've known some growing up and they're awesome guys. Yeah, they are they are Manly like men. They're like a cross between Walker, Texas Ranger and Steve Irwin. So they're like, <laughs> I love animals and I love yeah shooting animals. Yeah, I, love, I love animals and I love kicking butt. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they are really, I mean, they are really the, and, and so that's amazing that there were six guys for the whole state. Yeah. And these were and the two guys on the coast. You're, you're beat. This is a Brandis Pass <laughs> and Corpus Christi. It's about it's 100 the miles away. Yeah. It's about 100 miles. You get about well, 100 and probably, miles Well, probably his whole, like, patrol area was Aransas Pass down to probably Brownsville. Well, he reminds me, you know, when I was, I, I wrote a note in the, when I was researching this, and I was like, something about this reminds me of Jaws. And what I figured it out was is that <laughs> Captain Joe is 49. He's lived his whole life. He's born and raised on the islands. Yeah. He's been through hurricanes. He's built boats. He's That's gone to sea. Brody. He's Quint. He's Quint. Oh, he's Quint. He's, yeah. he's Quint. <laughs> he is Quint. He's, yeah. Quint. he's like, tie me a sheep shank. You know, like, oh, I don't know what I'm doing, but okay. No, I, I, so they're just like, boy, they got this. They pick the right. I was like, you couldn't pick a better guy. Like, you're going to pick this yeah. salty guy who's just, he knows the sea. And then you've got like his young rookie cop with him. I was like, this is like a. It's like a weird buddy cop movie I want to see. Like this is like a weird PBS period yeah. masterpiece theater and, piece. And it was a controversial thing at the time. This the, 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 this commission was very controversial. We looked up hundred at one point when it first started, hundred and thirty like Texas counties would simply say we're exempting ourselves from the enforcement of these environmental <laughs> yeah. laws. And at one point, hundred and thirty Texas counties basically said like. We refuse to recognize your yeah. environmental enforcement. People laws. can people Tune, can fish and hunt as they feel fit. <laughs> Tune in next week for tales of lies and malfeasance in the Texas Oyster Commission. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But yeah, they were they were. It, it's the, another progressive era movement. Uh, the the environmentalist and conservationist that really started the turn of the century. And but I mean, can you imagine like yeah. some poor guy like I don't have a fishing license? Like okay. 
I've got to burn your nets and I've got to burn your boat <laughs> and you better start. But, you know, the, they nope. talk about, you know, if you're not around the Gulf Coast, sane netting is what they're talking about when they talk about the net, people with their illegal nets. They're basically just these, these huge nets with very fine nets and you just throw them out and you scoop up and you basically, you know, they work like they're kind of crazy. They actually work like those nets in movies that ninjas throw on people. Like, I mean, they, <laughs> but they do that for fish. <laughs> yeah. They catch everything. They catch everything. They, they and people would, a whole... you know, and if you think people in Mad Men, like in 1960s, Mad Men were like, wow, these people had so little disregard for personal mm-hmm. space and the environment. Like this was way worse. So, so they were, they were just saying, just use a reasonable well, amount of decor. Well, this was a period only, 20 years after the the depopulation of the buffaloes where they were just shooting buffaloes to take their tongues and their hides and that was it. Right. And okay. so it's it, you know that that stemmed out of that time period and and the passenger pigeon was was completely extinct in a space of 15 years right at the turn of the century. So Right. Well, we're talking about gulf shrimp. Right. When that's important and oysters. <laughs> we're talking about something you're going to want to well, eat, not a passenger pigeon. You but, were telling me that yeah. people didn't want to eat oysters back in the year. Yeah, yeah. So the originally and there was a great podcast uh earlier this year stuff late, you missed. It was stuff you missed in history class and they did one talking about Chesapeake Bay and the the whole how the entire oyster industry sort of started there and the, the, the early use of dredges and the environmental effects of that. And, but they made the point that oysters were peasant food because they were so plentiful that you could just pick up an oyster and mm-hmm. open it with an oyster knife and you could eat it. Like it was just, that's what peasants ate because they were everywhere. And then when they became a delicacy and harvesting them came into fashion, that's when the large oyster populations really got to depopulate and we had to start to regulate them. Um, I'd like to go back and talk about just how awesome game wardens are, though. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the cool things that you that was highlighted in the article, and, and it's very solemn, is there's only 18 game wardens who, in Texas, as of the publication of that article I saw, that have that have died in the line of duty. And the uh, last one was in 2008. But if you look at, you know, the first two are like washed overboard in a hurricane. You're like, well, that's that's pretty awesome. And then there's you know, shot by a duck poacher. And, you know, uh, there was a couple of vehicle incidents where they were, you know, like a boat overturned or, you know, they're, they're, it's a dangerous job. Mm-hmm. Oh, it was like recently as 2001, there was one that was shot by a poacher. Yeah. And you think about like people who are poachers are, these are not nice people <laughs> who are doing this kind of large scale poaching. And it's a dangerous, a dangerous job. And they, and they provide a really important role. And, and I can't imagine Texas. It's hard to imagine Texas without game wardens. If you're right. ever active on the Gulf Coast fishing, if you're out on local lakes, if you're doing, you know, you meet and everybody meets and knows their local game wardens. And, yeah. and there's such and, a presence in our lives today. And, I can't imagine not having them. And I will say, you know, like growing up, you know, we had a boat when I was a kid. My dad's hunted my entire life. You know, pretty certain that um, my dad's speeds, you know, go, exceeds the speed limit every now and then. But he's never gone without a hunting license or a fishing license mm-hmm. or a boat license. He, he does not want to get caught no. breaking those rules by a game warden. No. Yeah. They, yeah. There's a. There's a it's really like getting pulled over on the freeway by a Texas Ranger. Yeah. Like, <laughs> oh wait, super cop. Yeah. <laughs> a super cop is giving me a speeding ticket. Yeah. They. But uh, you know, you meet these guys and they're just they're incredible people. And and so I thought it was it was a cool twist to this hurricane story to see that wow. Right when this happened was the genesis of 
an incredible policing force that provides a very valuable job to Texas that a lot of people maybe don't know about, especially, you know, if you live in jolly old England or something. Mm-hmm. Well, and two out of six, that's a third of the, imagine if the third of the police force of any city. Exactly. Well, let me just say yeah. this to, to people in England. Our game wardens are armed and <laughs> carry guns in Texas. I, I know some English people that probably are not surprised by that at all. No. <laughs> so if you are a game warden or maybe uh, your friends or relative or somebody who's a game warden, you know, have drop a, it. Just drop. have a fun game warden story. Yeah. Or on Facebook. Let us know on Facebook. Just drop us a line. Drop us a line. You know how to get in touch with us. It's at the end of the show. That wraps things up for today. You can find notes and links from today's show at brainstable.com. We'd love to hear from you. So like and share us on Facebook, follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast, or go to brainstable.com and leave us some feedback. You can find our show and many other great history podcasts at historypodcasters.com. You can follow us individually, too. I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java. I'm Max Sean Tuins. And I'm Scotticus with two T's. If you like the show, Tell your friends and please leave a review on iTunes or just a rating. Yeah, give us a five. Or a six if you can figure out how to do that. Five will do fine. It's important for you to leave these reviews on iTunes. It helps our show get noticed and gets us a bunch of new listeners just like you. We hope you'll join us next time. And remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas, Texas wants you anyway. anyway.